Welcome to episode 2 of the Northern Counties Paranormal Podcast, hosted by Within the Boggart Wood. I'd like to start today's podcast by announcing that the project actually has its first Patreon subscriber. I'd like to thank Jill Cowie for her support, and also for providing two of today's stories which I'll read later. Today's first story revolves around Allensford, which is a small hamlet near Consett in County Durham. There was a settlement at Allensford from at least the 14th century onwards. Nowadays it focuses around what is essentially a country park and a nature reserve. There's also a caravan park, campsite and a rather excellent cafe which I have sampled a number of times. Allensford is split by the river Derwent. On the south side lies the country park and picnicking areas and uh, caravan park. On the north side are actually the remains of an industrial archaeological landscape. Going back to my younger days in the 1970s and 80s, Allensford was a firm family favourite for Sunday picnics and days out. Most of these days out involved walks along the river, football, picnics, all on the south side of the river. On the north side of the river we'd noticed a small ruin. A small square building made out of stone with what appeared to be capped with concrete that was oddly reminiscent of a, a very, very degraded thatch. We knew it and locals at the time, other kids, knew it as a witch's house and coupled with the fact that there appeared to be the ruin of an oven slightly further up the hill from it, very much suggested in our minds a Hansel and Gretel style situation. Now the reality of the, the nature of these buildings is actually something rather different to a witch's house. The small square building is actually the remains of a blast furnace, with the oven being the remains of a calcining kiln. We know that there was an iron forge at Allensford by at least 1683. Excavations were carried out by Stafford Lindsay in the late 1970s, with the concrete capping put in place to essentially protect the remains underneath and keep them from collapsing. What most people don't realise is that the furnace was only one of two in the northeast producing iron during the 17th century, and the calcining kiln is actually the earliest surviving example of the type across the country. Stafford Lindsley undertook archaeomagnetic dating of the furnace. It actually provided a, a final burning date of about 1740, give or take 10 years. This date marks the decline of the local area within the iron industry. And by the mid-19th century, the housing was starting to develop within the area. So where did the idea that this industrial landscape actually belonged to witches and witchcraft come from? Initially, I thought it was simply the, the appearance of the, the ruins, um, very reminiscent of your, your Walt Disney-style witch's hut. But looking into the history of the area, there are actually references to Allensall being a hub of magical activity going back to the 17th century. If you'll pardon the pun, regard the 17th century in the northeast as a, a, a cauldron of uh, bubbling superstition and, and anti-witch activity. And during sessions at Morpeth, a particular Anne Armstrong of Burke's Nuke gave testimony about witchcraft at Allensford. The particular session is dated the 9th of April 1673, and reads, And she further saith that she particularly knew at the said meeting one Michael Ainsley of the Riding, Mary Hunter of Birkenside, widow, Dorothy Green of Edmund Byers in the county of Durham, widow, Anne Usher of Fairly May, widow, Elizabeth Pickering of Wittenslaw, widow, Jane, wife of William Makepeace of New Ridley, yeoman, Anthony Hunter of Birkenside, yeoman, John Whitfield of Edmund Byers, Anne Whitfield of the same, spinster, 
Dixon of Mugglesworth Park and Alice's wife, Catherine Ellett of Ebchester, Elizabeth Aitchinson of Ebchester, widow, and Isabel Andrew of Crooked Oak, widow, with many others, both in Morpeth and other places, whose faces this informer knows but cannot tell their names, all of which persons had their several meetings at diverse other places at other times, upon Collop, Monday last, being the 10th of February, the said persons met at Allensford, where this informant was ridden upon by an enchanted bridle by Michael Ainsley and Margaret his wife, which enchanted bridle, when they took it off from her head, she stood up in her own proper person, and see all the said persons before mentioned dancing, some in the likeness of hares, some in the likeness of cats, others in the likeness of bees, and some in their own likeness, and made this informant sing till they danced, and every thirteen of them had a devil in them, in sundry shapes, and at the said meeting their particular devil took them that did most evil, and danced with them first, and called every of them to an account, and those that did the most evil he made the most of. Now make of that account what you will. Think of it this way though, 17th century, Allensford, as we previously mentioned, was a rather industrious, probably very wealthy, iron-producing site. Accusations of this magnitude, said before a magistrate in Morpeth, would really have drawn unwanted attention to the area. And I do wonder if the stigma of the accusations of witchcraft in the area has continued in local memory and in the folklore of the area uh, to finally produce our witch's hut on the north side of the river. Now for those interested in the witch's hut, or should I say, or should I say blast furnace and calcining oven, work has been done to preserve the site over recent years by the Tynanweir Building Preservation Trust and the Land of Oak and Iron. As part of this, 3D models of both ruins were commissioned, and for those interested, I'll put links to these models on the main Boggartwood website so that you can have a look for yourselves. Also feel free to actually go and visit the site if you're in Allensford. It's free access along a track on the north side of the river. Just remember to take a sturdy pair of boots. Today I've got two stories to tell you, both provided by Jill, our first Patreon subscriber. In the summer of 2008, we were driving back home from Hexham. Home was in Allen Heads in the North Pennines. My two children, aged five and nine, were in the car as well as myself, my mum and dad. It was late in the evening and it was starting to get dark. We were about half a mile past Langley Castle on a forested flat stretch of the B6295 and we spotted a man on a bicycle. Nothing seemed out of place at first, then we got closer. He was dressed strangely and his bike seemed out of place. He was wearing plus fours with bicycle clips, was also wearing a deerstalker hat. Later, my dad and I did some research and found that the bike was a sit-up-and-beg policeman bike dating from the 1940s. My children noticed that the bike had no lights and that his clothes were ragged and torn at the bottom. As we were overtaking him in the car, of course we were all staring at him, from one window panel to the next, he simply vanished mid-air. My dad stopped the car in case he had fallen, but there was simply no trace of him. All the occupants of the car had seen him though. Now for me, this story rings a faint bell. I'm sure I've read somewhere about a phantom cyclist on the Langley Castle Road. Uh, can anyone here listening to this point me in the right direction where I've heard it from? I'm sure Jill would like to hear more about the case as well.
Jill's second story reads, Another interesting account was when I was doing my NVQ graphic design course in May of 1998. Just before my final assessment, I had laid out all my coursework on my bedroom floor because I knew it would be safe and could be built up section by section for my portfolio. Once I did that, I headed out, but what I didn't expect was to be greeted by bare baby footprints all over my work when I got home. Now, my confusion was that there was no one we knew with small children at the time, but that didn't stop me. So off I went to challenge my mum about it and ask her who had visited and why children had been allowed into my room to stomp all over my work. Not surprisingly, she was flabbergasted by my accusation, as there had been no visitors at all over the day. I showed her my coursework and the little confusion from her said it all. In a quiet voice, she said, no one has been in your bedroom. Even now, my dad still remembers the weirdness of it 25 years later. Today's From the Archive section comes from the Newcastle Journal from an article dated Tuesday 21st of August 1962 and is simply titled Peter the Poltergeist Rattles Blythe Bars. Two of Blythe's Main Street public houses are being visited by one of the spookiest customers in years, Peter the Poltergeist. Twice within 20 minutes, Peter, as is becoming affectionately known, has displayed his tantrums in both the Railway Hotel and the Croft Arms in Turner Street. At 2.30pm yesterday, he threw a table lamp from the shelves of the railway bar and smashed it to the floor. Astonished and mystified customers stared in bewilderment as the lone lamp hurtled from its resting place and thudded onto the concrete. Not a soul was within six yards of the lamp at the time. There were no vibrations, no slamming doors or windows which could dislodge the lamp from the shelf. Elsie Watts, the barmaid, quickly put the regulars at ease when she quipped, It's only Peter again. He always gets a bit uppish when he's had one over the eight. Then Peter did a ghostly jaunt 200 yards along to the Croft Arms and rattled a few bottles and liquor glasses on the display shelves in the bar. Mine host, 63-year-old Mr Eldon Bell, described the incident which happened at approximately 2.45pm as amazing. Everything in the bar just shook and a couple of the glasses fell onto the floor and smashed. I can't explain it at all. There is no physical reason why it should have happened, he explained. Once or twice there has been something in our upstairs flat, and it played a sort of unearthly tune on the wine glasses in our cocktail cabinet, said Mr Bell. But last night other pubs in Regent Street and Turner Street were taking no chance with Peter the Poltergeist. Bottles of spirits and drinking glasses were being locked away for safety. I don't believe in poltergeist, said one barman, but just the same, I don't believe in taking any chances. Today's folklore section details pancakes in the 19th century. This account dates to uh, about 1850. At Sheffield, pancakes are said to be thrown from the leads of the churches on Shrove Tuesday, and it is there held as a sort of minor all-fools day, for many are the children who more foolish adults are guilty of sending on the bootless errand of catching them in their descent, the moment the church clock strikes twelve. In some farmhouses it is still customary for the servants, male as well as female, according to seniority, to fry and toss their pancakes. But they did not get it ate before the next one was enough. They were dragged out of the house, put into a wheelbarrow, and wemmelled over upon the muck midden. Many thanks for listening. I hope you enjoyed episode 2. For more information, the Within the Boggart Wood website can be found at theboggartwood.uk on social media at 
facebook.com slash within the boggart wood or instagram.com slash within the boggart wood. If you'd like to help support the project financially, within the boggart wood's Patreon page can be found at patreon.com slash within the boggart wood. Until next time, stay safe and have a good week.